Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gordon Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a psychiatrist boarded in adult and geriatrics practicing in St. Louis. We're currently talking to Dr. Gordon Robinson about pitfalls in prescribing antidepressant medications. Dr. Robinson, any tips on how to figure out if a patient has ADHD with their depression or ADHD instead of depression? I look for the family history. The children are being diagnosed with ADHD a lot more reliably than the adults. The other thing you will see with ADHD is lots and lots of anxiety. And the reason is, especially as adults, depending on their level of successfulness in controlling or learning to control their symptoms, they will have a fair amount of anxiety trying to force themselves to pay attention or to concentrate. And to some degree, they're, they're able to do this, but it takes a real big toll on them. And consequently, a lot of them are very anxious. If you look at them, if you just listen to them talk, you'll see they're still jumping from topic to topic. Now, in adults, we usually just attribute this to anxiety or, oh, that's the way Joan is or whatever. But a lot of times that, that absolutely is ADHD. Ask for them. Ask about it in their childhood. I routinely screen for that. So I ask, gee, when you were a kid, were you a good student? Did you like school? Did you have trouble paying attention? In the boys, you also can get a lot of them who are hyperactive. A lot of the girls tend to be more inattentive type of ADHD. So you, you might ask more about daydreaming. Although I ask both of them because while that's a decent rule of thumb that boys tend to have hyperactivity more than girls, there there definitely are boys who daydream and girls who are hyperactive. And sometimes it's sneaky. I'll never forget early in my practice where I was just out of residency, had a patient I saw for, oh, I don't know, about a year and a half for depression. And she was quadriplegic. She had been involved in an automobile accident when she was 20. By the time I was seeing her, she was in her 40s, had two kids, gave birth and raised two children from a wheelchair, just an amazing lady. And one day we're, we're talking, and she told me that the, when she was in grade school, the nun that taught her in third grade at one time tied her to her desk with a rope. That kind of set off flares. Why did she tie you to a chair with a rope? Well, she was constantly getting out of the desk and was into things. And turned out she had ADHD, but gosh, there was... I certainly wasn't going to pick up hyperactivity in somebody who was quadriplegic, and I've been following her for a long time. So sometimes, as you get to know them, they'll drop subtle clues like that. Do you, Leslie, do you have any other things that you screen for? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, the big thing nowadays, it seems, at least where I practice, is that every other person walking in the door is bipolar. And I have a little pet peeve about that. I don't think everybody in the world is bipolar, but certainly there are bipolar patients out there. And, and that's a group that we need to be careful about giving antidepressants uh, indiscriminately. You know, and, and I see a lot of misunderstanding about bipolar. Yeah, of course, when we were in medical school, we called it a manic depressive illness. And what, what I remember about school is that we heard about mania. And I always had this mental image of somebody running down the street naked after going to the Ferrari store and buying a few cars. And, and that, of course, isn't typical of the way bipolar illness presents itself. But I, I find it still very difficult sometimes in the more subtle bipolar patients to pick it up. Any words of wisdom, Dr. Robinson, to, to help, especially a primary care physician who doesn't have the luxury of maybe an hour like we do in an initial evaluation? How do you, how do you figure out if somebody might be bipolar and depressed? 
Well, that's always a tricky one. If you're going to give somebody an antidepressant, it's really the standard of care. You really should do some screen for bipolar disorder. Now, what you do is up to you, but you really should do something. And the reason is the one place where an antidepressant might harm a patient is if you give it to a bipolar patient because it may trigger mania, rapid cycling, and worsen their prognosis. And also, it has been a source of successful lawsuits against physicians. So, you know, on both accounts, we don't want to be sued, but we, you know, on a broader sense, we, we don't want to hurt our patients. And that's kind of the one place where SSRIs or the modern antidepressants, really, you want to be more thoughtful. So you're absolutely right. You want to screen for that one way or another. Personally, I think mood disorder questionnaire is the way to go. Uh, the reason for that, oh, by the way, the mood disorder questionnaire is a validated, it's a questionnaire of something like 16 questions. You can get tablets of them very easily, and you can find them on the Internet as well. It was developed by Dr. Hirschfeld, and it's the only kind of validated screening tool for bipolar disorder. The nice thing about it is it's done by the patients. It's not physician-administrated. So you can give this to the patient. They can fill it out while you go off to answer a phone call or you know do whatever else you're going to do. And then when you come back, you look at it, and you have documentation for your chart because you can put the paper in your chart, and you've done a pretty significant screening for it. Now, is that the only way to screen for the patient for bipolar disorder? And the answer is no. Dr. Want, do you use the mood disorder questionnaire for screening? You know, Gordon, that's one that I really don't like. I know it's very commonly used and it's easy. And I did use it for years, but I found so many false positives with it. And my fear with the MDQ is that people just take the questions and their answers at face value, and that may be what's driving this huge increase in what I see as the misdiagnosis of bipolar disorder. So, for example, one of the questions is, are you ever irritable? And one patient I had once checked most everything yes on the MDQ, so if you just looked at it at face value, you'd think, oh my gosh, this this lady is bipolar. And then I started asking her about her answers on every one of these questions. And, for example, the irritability question question. I said, gosh, so so you're irritable, huh? And she said, well, I'm not irritable all the time, but I'm a middle school teacher, and sometimes those kids just really bug the heck out of me. And I said, well, you know, gosh, that, that sounds pretty normal to me. I don't know that I would call that bipolar because teenagers make you irritable once in a while. So I think we just have to be really careful that, that these questions are, are very vague And, for example, ADHD, I think, can present with a lot of the same positive responses as bipolar. So I would just caution people to not take the answers at face value all the time on the MDQ. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gordon Robinson, We are discussing what to do before starting a patient on antidepressants and specifically talking about screening for bipolar disorder. The other problem with the mood disorder questionnaire is that although the questions are worded properly, in other words, that they're looking for constellation of symptoms within a given week, often patients who fill out the questionnaire don't answer it that way. So they'll answer the question, have you ever been irritable? And they go, yeah, I've been irritable for a week. Did you ever have a week where you didn't sleep well? Yes, I had a week where I didn't sleep well. But they're really supposed to be in the same week. Right. And they're not answering that. So you're absolutely right. There are a lot of false positives. I'll be honest with you, I don't use it either. I think you're, you're right that if it's positive, that's not enough. You need to then ask them about it. I start out with a broader question. Have you ever had a week 
where you felt really up, you needed less sleep than usual, and you had lots and lots of energy. Now, I get a lot of false positives, too, with that question, because what they'll say is, oh, yeah, the week before my wedding, I was it's like, no, no. <laughs> have you ever felt like that for no reason? And, and then you have to get some more details, but it kind of starts the conversation off. And I, I want to tell your listeners, if you miss bipolar disorder a lot, so do I. So does everybody. It's kind of a sneaky diagnosis, and the re- there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is when people don't ask. That clearly happens. But in addition, patients frequently don't describe manic or hypomanic spells as abnormal. They'll identify those as, oh, I felt good at that time, because they did. And they won't, you know, even though you're asking about it, they don't tell you about it because they don't consider it abnormal. And then sometimes I've had patients who didn't want to be bipolar. So when you're asking the questions, they say no, not because they didn't have the symptoms, but because they knew I was asking about bipolar disorder and they didn't want to have bipolar disorder. So if they told me no, they didn't have it. One of the things that, that I've used, and again, I, you know, I don't know that it's practical for non-psychiatrists, but, but for those in our audience that are really interested in this issue, Ron Pease at Harvard has developed what he calls the bipolar spectrum scale. And it really, to me, is much more finely tuned to some of these issues of bipolar disorder. And again, you can find that on the internet, or if people want to email me, I I can send them a copy as well. It's been very helpful in my practice. So let's say uh, you are bipolar. We've made that diagnosis. What's the worst thing that could happen if you mistakenly put a patient on antidepressants without considering that they are bipolar? Probably the worst thing that can happen is you can trigger a manic spell or worse still, a mixed episode where they become very energized and agitated and suicidal and kill themselves. How common does that happen, do you think? Now, that's real controversial about you know, whether antidepressants really do that. It's not the norm by any stretch. It's rare. Switching absolutely happens following depressive episodes. However, the thing you have to remember is in untreated bipolar patients, when they finish having a, a depressive episode is absolutely a time when they're at high risk for having manic episodes. If you remember, uh, your listeners remember, bipolar patients are times when their mood is normal, times when they're depressed, and times when they're manic. They have a lot more depressed episodes than anything of mood disorder, and on the average person, they have normal mood is, is about half the time. But manic episodes are more likely to follow a depressive episode than come up just de novo, and, and both happen. But because of that, it's hard in a lot of the studies where they look at, oh, look here, we gave this patient antidepressant and they became manic. Well, you don't really know if the antidepressant made them manic or if the antidepressant just took care of the depression. The mania was coming anyway. A lot of the literature doesn't clarify that because some of the literature, for example, looking at this issue will compare one antidepressant to another but doesn't have a placebo arm. Right. We've always heard sort of the clinical lore that bupropion or Welbutrin is less likely to cause a manic switch. What do you think about that? That was real popular or started out years ago. I think it's less popular now. There are people who will still swear to that because of its mechanism of action. But I think that's kind of come under attack lately. And my understanding is pretty much all the antidepressants are equally likely to flip somebody or switch them to mania if that actually happens, you know, if it's the antidepressant that's doing it. And by the way, in some cases, it absolutely does. I don't know anybody who doesn't have several patients that, that, you know, you give them an antidepressant and gosh, within a week, they're just 
they're zooming. Or in some cases, I've made the diagnosis of bipolar disorder because that's what happened. They uh, I gave them the antidepressant. That was I don't know if it was necessarily their first mania or hypomania, but the first one I knew about. And so we all see that clinically. We're just not sure what it means in all cases. Yeah, it's true. You know, if you recall, a, a couple of years ago in 2004, the Cochrane Collaborative came out with a report, and essentially their conclusion after looking at, I believe it was a dozen studies in the world's literature, was that actually antidepressants don't cause manic switches. So so it's still a lot of controversy. Most clinicians that I come in contact with strongly disagree with that. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Gordon Robinson. We've been discussing what to do before the antidepressant begins. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 